Are, are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. No, I haven't, no. A good cop can't sleep because a piece of the puzzle's missing, and a bad cop can't sleep because his conscience won't let him. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. All this trouble, all this care. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. Damn lucky to have them. Anything they want to see, you show them. Today, we are reviewing Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. So when does it get dark, Randy? Uh, it doesn't. <laughs> Not this time of year. This podcast is spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Nobody needs to know. Listener discretion is advised. This situation isn't yours to control. I'll control this situation, pal, because you don't hide from me in a town this small. Get it? Don't worry, I'm not telling anyone anything. We're partners on this. Today we're discussing Insomnia, starring Al Pacino, Robin Williams, Hilary Swank, Mara Tierney, directed by Christopher Nolan. This is Arnie, the Insomniac co-host of Now Playing. How else do you think all this gets edited? Stuart in LA. What has two thumbs and loves blowjobs? This host. (laughs) This is Jacob. (laughs) But yes, Insomnia, Christopher Nolan's 2002 follow-up to Memento. I was there opening weekend. Couldn't get anybody to go with me. Nobody thought this movie looked interesting from the trailers. But I'm like, it's Nolan. He did Memento. It's Pacino. I love Pacino. I'm there. Yeah, I didn't see this one when it was theatrically released. I saw it probably a year or two later on Netflix. Again, I think that same year this came out, Robin Williams, wasn't that one-hour photo as well where he started playing like creepy serial killers? Yeah. So that's the reason I went to this, not because of Christopher Nolan. And this is a remake of a Norwegian film. I actually got both films and watched them together way back again, like 2004. And I did that again for this time around. Actually, that was a big impediment for my anticipation for Insomnia. I saw Insomnia, the 1997 Norwegian film, when it came out in art movie theaters back in the 90s. And I didn't like it. And so when I found out that Nolan was going to remake it, I was disappointed. I was like, oh, he should do something original. He can do better than what that movie was. Now, I have gone back. I've rewatched that original film as well as this film a couple times, actually, to see if I could parse out what I thought was wrong with the original and to compare and contrast. I have a different impression now. I will say that. I can say that what I probably responded to back in the 90s was how... Clearly, the original was indebted to Twin Peaks and Silence of the Lambs and all those early serial killers from the 90s. Same notes that I have, yeah. (laughs) Twin Peaks and Silence of the Lambs, yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely there, and I think it's a reason not to like the film, but I also can see just a very strong Scandinavian mystery. You know, now that we've had Dragon Tattoo and The Vanishing and The Killing and all of these, we've been inundated with more of the Scandinavian mystery thriller. It has its own particular stark style as well, and I think that there's merit to it that'll be worth bringing up as we discuss the remake. Yeah, I watched the Norwegian one as well. I have this bit of OCD that started now playing. If a movie is a sequel or a remake, I like to see the original first. So I didn't do that when this movie came out back in 2002. But for this time, I decided to go back and watch it, especially since I know Stellan Skarsgård, the star of it, now from his roles in Thor and 
Jeez. I, I knew him from Kingdom <laughs> Hospital as well, but Thor. Yeah, I knew him from the Lars von Trier. That's why I actually went to Insomnia. Was I loved him in Breaking the Waves. I wanted to see everything he was in, and then I saw that one and was like, nah, maybe not. But there was a interview done around the time of the release of the Blu-ray of the Norwegian Insomnia where Skarsgård got back together with that director and they discussed how there was no Scandinavian noir. Their movie Insomnia kind of kicked that off and now, yeah, there's Dragon Tattoo and so many others. But back then, they were really pioneering it. So, yeah, I've watched both. But today we're doing a Nolan retrospective, not an Insomnia retrospective. So focusing on Nolan, quite a difference, though. I mean, Al Pacino versus a younger Stellan Skarsgård. One feels very European to me, and Nolan's, it feels very American to me. We'll get into it, but the characters have different motivations, I feel, which really sets the original and the remake apart. Yeah, well, why wouldn't it feel like a Hollywood movie? This is Nolan doing a big Warner Brothers project. This is the first film he's going to make for Warner Brothers, an important relationship that's going to bring us all of the rest of his films, actually. So, yeah, he's brought onto this project because of another indie guy that went studio. Steven Soderbergh, a man that helped get Memento distribution, he owned the rights to this. He thought Nolan had the right sensibilities. If he could tell a story in which a guy had no short-term memory and make us believe that by watching it, well, then he can find an interesting way for us to watch a story about a guy that can't sleep. Right? Right? (laughs) Arnie, you better give him the plot. (laughs) Try not to fall asleep while I do it. (laughs) Two Los Angeles detectives, Will Dormer, played by Al Pacino, and his partner, Hap Eckhart, played by Martin Donovan, are sent to Nightmute, Alaska to assist with a murder case. 17-year-old Kay Connell was beaten to death, then the killer took the time to clip her nails, wash her hair, and remove any evidence. The body was found in a garbage dump wrapped in bags. But it turns out Dormer and Eckhart were sent not only to help, but to get out of the way of an internal affairs investigation. The spotlight is about to turn on Dormer, who's a good cop, but feels anything found will cause all his arrests to be undone. To make matters worse, their first night in Alaska, Eckhart tells Dormer he's going to take a deal and give testimony against his partner. Dormer has trouble focusing on the case, both due to the internal affairs issue as well as the fact that the sun never sets, leaving the city in endless daylight and Dormer unable to sleep. But during a trap set to capture the killer, Dormer finds himself chasing the man through the fog. The killer shoots at Dormer, and, unable to see clearly, Dormer shoots and kills Eckhart. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Even Dormer isn't sure, but he goes through the steps to cover it up, taking the killer's gun and replacing the bullet taken from Eckhart's body with one from the gun, and telling the other officers that Eckhart was shot by the mysterious killer. The investigation into Eckhart's murder is headed up by Officer Ellie Burr, played by Hilary Swank, a young officer who idolizes Dormer. Sometimes they come back. (laughs) Oh my god, that's right. But the killer knows Dormer's secret, and so he reveals himself. Played by Robin Williams, the killer is author Walter Finch, who Kay had gone to see as a mentor. But Finch had developed a crush on the girl, and when he made his move, Kay laughed at him. Enraged, Finch beat her to death. With evidence against Dormer for the murder of Eckhart, Finch views the two as unintentional partners who must team up to frame Kay's abusive boyfriend Randy for her murder. But Dormer, his intentions are unclear. He seems to go along with Finch in words, but then takes steps to make sure Finch fries for the crime, knowing that once Finch is killed, he will have gotten a taste for it. As the evidence fabricated by Finch mounts against Randy, Burr finds more evidence revealing that Dormer shocked Eckhart. 
But when going to Finch's lake house to get letters written by Kay, Burr spots Kay's missing dress. So Finch knocks her out cold and is about to kill her. When Dormer interrupts, despite having not slept for seven days, he saves Burr's life. A shootout occurs and Finch and Dormer kill each other with simultaneous gunshots. Burr offers to throw away the evidence against Dormer, but the dying cop tells Burr not to let herself become corrupt as he dies. And credits roll. And before we start, I just gotta ask, is there a hidden Batman reference with the name Eckhart? Because there was Batman symbol in Following, there was a Batman symbol in Memento, I'm looking for Batman in Insomnia, but Eckhart was the name of the fat cop killed in Burton's 89 film. I don't know, I haven't really been paying attention to the Bat symbol since the first movie. I guess I'm just looking for bat clues, but... Yeah, well, you're gonna have to wait one more film. He'll make Batman Begins after Insomnia, but right now, he's making his big studio debut, and one of his trademarks, I mean, something that we've cited as really distinctive about his style from his first two films, is non-chronological storytelling. Here, this movie is more or less told straightforward in a linear fashion, except for in this beginning, and interspersed throughout this movie, We do have a flashback here. We do see a blood smear on a cuff. We do see gloved hands and an eyedropper putting blood into a drawer. We're going to end up finding out that this is something from Al Pacino's past that he's trying to forget about or cover up. And it's, I guess, as Nolan as this movie's going to get in its non-chronological telling. Yeah, it's the closest thing this movie has to a twist as well, because I just watched the Norwegian version the day before watching this, and the Norwegian version starts with the murder of the young girl. So here I see this, I just immediately assume I'm seeing the murder of the young girl, because we don't clearly see Pacino's face. We see hands, we see blood. I think the murderer is cleaning up, because we'll find out... Again, he removed all evidence. He washed her hair. When we finally see Pacino's eyes, we've cut to the present time, and he's looking at a case file. So I think what we're seeing is the Robin Williams character doing a murder, and at the end, when all is revealed of what we've been seeing, it's not that Pacino has some great insight into the criminal mind like Will from Manhunter. It's that he himself isn't as clean a cop as he appears. Even if you didn't see that Norwegian film, because I definitely saw it the same way as you, Arnie, that film opens up with the girl, the murdered girl being cleaned up. I I think that would be your assumption. You're watching the killer do something because the point is made that he really cleaned her, washed her hair, cut her nails, so there would be no evidence. And all I see in these little flashbacks, I I miss that dropper until they actually talk about Pacino planting blood. I just see this person with gloves on meticulously, like, scrubbing this blood out of some cloth. We'll see that blood soak through the threads many times. And and so I just assumed this was a flashback to the actual murder. It is the frame by which Pacino is faded. Everything else that happens is really because of this moment, because he did this. We find out very early that he and his partner are under investigation. That's why they're being brought to Nightmute, Alaska. They got to whisk them out of Los Angeles because Internal Affairs thinks that that whole homicide department is dirty and they're going systematically through each cop and getting them to rat out here. They mention quite often about the Dobbs case, but I don't think that we're to know that these flashbacks are connected to that. And we just know from their conversations that the Dobbs case could be what gets Dormer sent up the river. He could lose his job. He could go to jail. An innocent man could go to jail, innocent in quotes, and a guilty man could go free because of this blood smear. 
Right. And they dropped the name about the Dobbs case. And my focus of it is who is Dobbs? What did Dobbs do? Because they say they might let Dobbs free. Oh, shit. No one wants to see Dobbs free. I'm like, is he a Hannibal Lecter type thing? What's going on with Dobbs? I didn't suspect Pacino to be a cop that took some shortcuts in his case. It's an interesting development that does shed some light onto his character here. That's, a again, kind of an end movie reveal. Unlike Memento, where we find out the end and it changes your view of this, I don't know that it changes my view of this action he takes here in Alaska. Oh, for me, this whole internal affairs plot taints this movie. This is something unique to Nolan's film. It seems like for an American audience, you got to give a motivation or, or to create more of this mystery. And so I feel like this whole internal affairs thing was added to motivate why would Pacino maybe murder his partner? We're never quite sure. He's even not sure. But to me, it feels like it's so obvious. I mean, even the name of this Alaskan town, Night Mute. It's a real place. Okay. It sounds fake. It sounds like, hey, American audiences, just in case you don't get that the sun never goes down, we're going to call it Night Mute. It's a real place, population 208. It's kind of near where Sarah Palin lives. You get a great view of Russia. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you, Jacob, because the Norwegian movie follows this one very closely. But yeah, there's no reason for him to kill his partner in that one. Here, there's a reason. It makes it more mysterious. In the last one, it just seems like an accident he's covering up. Here, definitely, he has a reason to kill him. I'm wondering... Is Pacino a murderer or was it an accident? The way the scene plays when that all goes down is very questionable. And Eckhart thinks that Dobbs killed him. Eckhart thinks it was an intentional murder because Eckhart was going to trade evidence against Dobbs for immunity. I mean, there's clearly motive there. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the big twist. Uh, You guys are jumping ahead and saying he's murdering his partner. That's going to take about 25 minutes. But I am going to go ahead and just say, better fix this is the americans doing it better than the norwegians by adding the subplot i disagree with you jacob before what we find out is that the partner was senile and you tell him things and he never remembers it right and that's what's going to get him killed here they make it more psychological they set up an idea in which dormer is going to go down because his partner is going to rat him out so when we get to that 25 minute mark and he shoots a man in the fog, did he do it on purpose? That's more interesting to me than, oops, I shot my senile partner because he did the wrong thing. I'll just leave it at this with the Norwegian one. It feels more thematic. This is about what happens when you commit an accident. We'll, We'll find out later with the Robin Williams character and this murder. What happens when something is just an accident? How do you respond to that accident? For the cop to have to go through that same scenario... And the Norwegian one, I think it fits better thematically versus the American one where Pacino, he does possibly have a motive to cover up this possible murder. And by the same token, in this one, Robin Williams murdering the girl is no accident. He beat her for 10 minutes straight by accident. Yeah, we'll get there. But I just want to set up the vibe of this movie. You're jumping into the meat of it. And I think you're right. This is what insomnia is about. But for 25 minutes, they pretend this is a whodunit. They tell you a 17-year-old girl has been killed, and we need to find her killer, and is it going to be Bobby Briggs, or is it going to be, oh wait, (laughs) not Twin Peaks. (laughs) Who killed Laura Palmer? Yeah, Laura is found in a garbage bag, yes. (laughs) She's dead wrapped in plastic. She is. And when they're not taking from Lynch, 
they've got a lot of Silence of the Lambs here. I mean, when they go to her room and are looking at her dresses, I mean, these visuals are very, very much taken from the Demi film. It was what I dinged the original Norwegian for. To me, it felt like the Norwegians were ripping off the Americans. And now I can see that they did it to their own names. But I'm glad that they decided this wasn't a very good whodunit and to do something more psychological. Because this first 25 minutes, yeah, it could be the abusive high school boyfriend, but we know Robin Williams is in this movie. We know they haven't introduced him yet. We know that there is a mysterious rich suitor that has given this girl's gifts, so it's not going to be the boyfriend. It's going to be Robin Williams. And you say Silence of the Lambs. What really made me feel like Silence of the Lambs in this version of Insomnia is Hilary Swank's character. Detective Ellie Burr, you know, this kind of, I don't know if she's a rookie, but she seems new to the fore. She's obsessed with the methods of Al Pacino's character, Detective Dormer. She knows all about him. She's, you know, she's really the one that's going to solve what's going on. Do people really follow the careers of LAPD police detectives (laughs) to the degree that they have bankers boxes of case files? I thought that was a dissertation or something that she wrote. I don't know if you have to write a dissertation to become a cop, but that's how I took it. (laughs) It just seems strange that police officers have fans. Yeah, she's a fangirl. What they've done is they've created something in parallel. She is the fangirl to Al Pacino, the same way that the murdered girl was an aspiring poet that was a fangirl of the character of Robert Williams. They compare and they contrast. In the Norwegian film, there is a female detective. She does uncover similar things that Hilary Swank is going to uncover, but it is not written in this way. I'm going to say it again. I think the American version is right for adding these character details. I like these details. I don't necessarily like Burr as the fangirl, but it works for me. I do agree with you, Stuart, that the addition of the internal affairs thing, it's a little trite. I mean, how often have we seen internal affairs investigate cops and things like that? It just it feels overdone. And so that's where I agree with Jacob. It feels like the Americans forcing it in. But it does add to the real mystery of this, of why would Dormer kill him, intentional or accident. Hilary Swank, coming right off her Oscar, she was one of the draws to this film for me as well. You mentioned sometimes they come back again. I'd forgotten about that. I always do think (laughs) of the next Karate Kid. But yes, I mean, by this point, she'd done Boys Don't Cry, The Gift. She was an actress I was actually following. It's kind of hard for me to remember. I used to like her. I I now kind of don't. But there was a time where I really thought she had chops and I wanted to see everything she did. And I like her here. I forget she could be a likable, fun, bubbly presence on film. I think Million Dollar Baby really changed my impression of her and just that she doesn't have this kind of fun on screen anymore. She's a real good presence during this first half hour. She's the most interesting thing while Pacino, he's just a hoo away from every other performance he's ever given. No, no, no. Now, let's talk about performances. Let's talk about careers. Yes, she's on the rise. She won an Oscar for Boys Don't Cry, and this is more or less her big movie after that. This is her follow-up to prove that she deserved to win that statue. But Al Pacino is 10 years beyond his winning for Sin of a Woman, a movie he should have never won for, and several decades away from the parts that people loved him for, which are The Godfather and Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon. I love those movies, too. In the 90s, Pacino in a movie is a bad thing. I love Devil's Advocate. I knew you were going to say it! (laughs) (laughs) 
any movie he's in in the 90s or not if he's chewing up that scenery i'm having some fun with it the bigger he goes the more fun i have and I feel he goes pretty big here, and I'm not having fun. I, this is what I would expect almost Robin Williams to be doing. He's going to be very tame in this film. He's not going to play too tight here. But, yeah, I don't know. He just feels a little too broad. He, he does, yeah, he comes in. He's the big L.A. cop, I guess. I don't know why Alaskan cops would know who he is. It, it seems like he should almost be FBI or something with the kind of swagger he walks around with. I agree, but does the FBI have uh, internal affairs? <laughs> He does not yell for the first 30 minutes. That's unprecedented <laughs> for Al Pacino. Unprecedented. I know. I was actually disappointed when I watched this in theaters that it takes him so long to get to it. <laughs> it's what you want, you know? Yeah. The way he knocks something off a desk and it's like, oh! and I'm like, oh, Al, you, it is you. I think he's pretty sedate. I think Nolan's intention is to restore him to the respected actor he was in the 70s and make us forget those bombastic performances you are relishing, Arnie. And I think that it's a similar intent with Robin Williams. He's taking two, I'll go ahead and say it, hammy actors who still have some talent and telling them to dial it back and keep it real. I think Pacino is more successful with it than Williams is, but we'll get to Williams when we do. First, we got to get to the act two twist which is that Pacino has been staking out a fishing cabin where they found a backpack for the murdered girl. And they put out over the air that they're looking for it. That's going to trigger the man responsible to go get it. So whoever's walking up to this cabin, they see a guy in a green hoodie, that's who they need to nab. And so it starts a chase. I love how it begins because one of the officers screws up. They fire off the bullhorn and kind of give away their position. Of course, I don't know how much ahead of time that was going to do it since they have a bullhorn. They weren't going to sneak up <laughs> on the guy. But it is kind of a funny moment before a eh, semi-boring chase. I mean, when Pacino is kind of reluctant to chase, I almost feel like Pacino's lack of energy in this first half hour is lack of commitment to the movie. The killer goes out through a tunnel in the bottom and Pacino's like, all right, I guess I'm going to jump. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I guess if they didn't know about the tunnels, why not have a bullhorn? Just surround the place and tell them to come out. I'll say this, maybe because this is kind of slow. I do love, I don't know if Nolan's responsible or the director of photography. It makes me want to visit Alaska. You know, we get these opening shots with the planes going over the ice fields. When we get into this secluded cabin and the way the mist and the fog is rolling through everything, I, I think it looks beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. It made me want to go. It reminded me of those opening shots of The Shining in many ways. The film has a great look to it, and the look is very important. I mean, Wally Pfister, who is the cinematographer that Nolan is going to use for the foreseeable future and for all of his films afterwards, he really does capture the idea that it is eternal daylight at this point. It is summer in Alaska. And so it never sets. So sun never sets here. And so in order to create a mood here, they have the fog. The fog is meant to create the confusion, add to the mystery, gives it a blue tinge. But it's still daylight. And it's an important motif throughout this film. It's because of this fog that Dormer shoots his partner instead of Robin Williams. Now, this is a critical difference. This is something that the screenwriter had to come up with something new. Because in the Norwegian film, it's all predicated on the fact that Swedish cops can carry guns and Norwegian ones don't. So no one suspects Stellan Skarsgård of firing a gun because he's not supposed to be carrying one in Norway. Here, obviously, Alaska, no problem with guns. You can have <laughs> your gun. 
I think you have to by law. <laughs> yeah. So they had to create a different set of circumstances. I think the internal affairs investigation works here. They create this whole mystery about which gun was fired and and whose gun did the bullet come from. I think it works. It was a little confusing to me the way it shot because Pacino starts firing with his main gun. And then for whatever reason, I can't even tell if he pulls the trigger and I watched this twice. It jams. He does. He did pull that trigger. Okay, I couldn't tell if it jammed or if it was out of ammo or if he just changed his mind. But for whatever reason, he throws it to the ground and pulls another pistol from his back, which they'd never set up. He had a second one. They tell us much later he carries a backup. I didn't know if this was a gun he'd found in the chase because it's hard to see in the fog. And then he shoots. But the changing of the gun like that, when it happened, without ever making it fully clear for me why he did it, added to the ambiguity of if it was an intentional murder. Right. It gave him a longer time to stare at his target. I mean, it wasn't just instinct there. He pulled the trigger on one, it didn't fire. He had a couple more seconds of looking at him as he pulled it out of his back pocket, and bam. So yeah, did he know? My problem is that although they tease the idea that Pacino maybe did it on purpose. By and large, it's not a subtext they really explore much more. I don't think he did. I'll say it. I never buy that he actually did it on purpose. I don't know. There's weird things like, why didn't he tell the person to put their arms up in the fog or call? I don't know. Maybe he thought they were just going to shoot anyway. Because the first guy got shot. Yeah. They did do that for the first guy and the doofus got shot. The klutz got shot because they said halt. So he wasn't going to do it twice. But that fog is thick. I could barely see what's going on. And I don't know, maybe that's to fool the audience. But I tend to think what you're showing us there is supposed to also be, unless evidence is provided otherwise, what the characters are seeing. And I never get the feeling that the characters were able to see through that fog, clearly. I agree with both of you. I don't think he meant to kill him. I'm kind of playing it both ways just because it's more interesting to me that way the movie wants to play it both ways i think i think so too at the end pacino's like i don't even know if i meant to kill him because if it was an accident it seems like the easiest thing to do is tell the truth right away you know just say it was foggy i was shot at this other guy got shot in the leg i thought i was protecting myself that makes a lot more sense and is a lot more plausible than all the machinations he goes through I mean, he's already, we already talked about, he faked a case once, and he said he always knew it would catch up to him. Here, this just seems destined to fail. Well, he does know IA is going to his partner. His partner told him the night before at the hotel that he was next up to be interrogated by IA, and he was going to cut a deal, and names were going to be names. So I could see, because of that IA subplot in this film, why Pacino would feel that he wouldn't be believed if he came forward and told the truth. And it's even said, I mean, it's overt in the movie. At one point, Warfield, who is the IA guy, calls the front desk and is just like, oh, I heard your partner got shot. I'll be really interested to read the ballistics on that. I mean, he all but calls him the murderer there at the front desk. So, yeah, the pressure is on for Pacino to free himself. Now, you'll notice that after we get through this moment, Pacino never lies. He never signs a statement. He never denounces his involvement in what he did. He is stalling everyone. Oh, you are so splitting hairs. He shoots a dead dog <laughs> to get a bullet that he can then replace in the evidence locker, which is so much worse than lying. I mean, he does duplicitous things for the sake of covering his own ass. 
But he's done that before, and we'll find that out with the Dobbs case. My point is that I think it's his ethic that I always told the truth. I never spoke a lie. I think that that's what he's operating on. That's why he doesn't sign Ellie's report. That's why he doesn't chime in there. He tells Ellie to go back and reread it even. He's like, don't sign your name unless you're 100% sure. To me, that's telling me, does he want to get caught? Does he feel that guilt already later? I definitely think he feels the guilt. But right away, he's telling Ellie, go back and reread the facts and make sure that's what you want to sign your name to. He's stalling. The only thing I could chalk that up to was he's tired. He's not thinking straight because he goes through all this trouble to cover his own ass. And when she's ready to sign off and give him the free and clear, he's like, ah, go make sure. I think this guy has a guilty conscience and wants to do the right thing, but is tempted to do the wrong thing. And I think you're right. And it's a big difference between the foreign film and the American film. In the foreign film, this really kicks off Stellan Skarsgård doing increasingly more immoral things. There was no internal affairs investigation but it had already been alluded to that he slept with witnesses and that, yeah, he wasn't 100% pure. But after this, yeah, he's fingering witnesses that are riding in the car with him. He's shooting. No, not fingering as in implicating, by the way. Fingering as in <laughs> finger bang. Yes. Okay. Let me, let me be vulgar about it. Yes. He is shooting dogs so that he can get that ballistics. Here, they do pull punches. They do want us to remain on Pacino's side. They feel like if they have him go as far as they do in the foreign film, we just wouldn't care anymore. Yeah, here Pacino, he shoots a already dead dog versus a dog that's alive in the Norwegian version. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, I think that's a big change. I think they mute this film for a more sensitive audience. No doubt about it. They are wanting us to like Pacino, even as he's doing reprehensible things. If you watch Stallone Skarsgård, there's no way that you could respect what he's doing. And he doesn't ask to be respected. The question is, will he ever come back from the darkness? You know, I do wonder, is this Christopher Nolan? Because this is a Christopher Nolan retrospective, so I want to bring it up. Is this him just directing a film? I just don't feel it has a lot of his key elements that we've talked about with the last two, with Inception, with even the Batman films. Al Pacino, yes, it's striving. I, I never, I guess, really dislike him. Even when we find out what he's guilty of, he, he had good intentions. And I just don't feel as challenged with this film and with the Al Pacino character, this protagonist, as I did the last two weeks. Look at the credits. Nolan is director. He didn't write the screenplay. He wasn't involved in the inception of it. He was brought in by Soderbergh to direct this. I agree with you, Jacob. I don't feel Nolan's fingerprint on this. There's definitely fingerprints here, but I think what you've said is key. We're not being challenged the way that Nolan likes to challenge his audience. It's his movie. I mean, yeah, you've got moral ambiguity. You got a little non-chronological. You got pessimistic themes and him trying to put us in the mind state of a character with psychological stress. I mean, I definitely think it's his movie. But is it as much his movie as Memento or Following? No, this is a, a studio for hire. This is someone that is taking a paycheck to deliver a studio film. He is a hired gun. And so, yeah, it doesn't feel exactly the same, but it, it's not impersonal. I guess that's what I want to stress. When I see scenes like Al Pacino trying to tape the shutter so that the light is blocked out, it's reminding me of those scenes with Guy Pierce on the phone. Because this is a remake, and because he didn't write it, yeah, it, it just feels like he does have little, you said it, Stuart, fingerprints, but it feels like Nolan Light to me. It feels like themes that he would have taken deeper are here, they're, they're just not as deep as he would have gone. 
And more importantly, you know, if we talk about the neutering for American audiences, we're reviewing Nolan's film and not the Norwegian one. But you talked about how Skarsgård was sticking his hand up young girls' skirts and things. There's a theme to that movie that really resonated with me about, honestly, aging men and young women. The senile partner tried flirting with this hotel clerk, and then Skarsgård tries to sleep with her. The whole murder is predicated upon an old man trying to sleep with a young girl. That's the only thing they bring over here, but that, to me, is what that Norwegian film is about. It's not about crime. It's about guilt. It's about aging, and it's about lust. Here, it's about... Pacino. And notice we call him Pacino. This tells me something <laughs> that it's he's bringing a normal performance. We're not calling him Will. We're not calling him Dormer. We're calling him Pacino because that's who he's playing. And it's about him trying to look tired and give a few of his line readings. I'm not getting any of that deep themes I got out of the original. But it's there. I mean, if you want to look at Leonard and how he both simultaneously wanted to find his wife's murderer and at the same time wanted to free himself of guilt. This is exactly what Al Pacino's doing. And I call him Al Pacino for the listeners. I think he's an icon and people know who that is. Then if I say Dormer, they may not know who I'm referring to. But yeah, it's a similar struggle, but I don't think we care as much because, well, frankly, the other one, by making it so non-chronological and making us such active participants, we're just more excited about the case. I mean, here it's a lot of debate about shotgun shells. I mean, it really all comes down to who wears the gun. I mean, what we'll find out is that the culprit they were chasing saw Al Pacino kill his partner, dropped his gun because he knew that that was going to be put on him, and is now shocked, shocked that the forensic evidence is saying that he's still responsible for the murderer. He wants to partner with Al Pacino to frame the boyfriend and they can both get away. So Pacino has to think, do I want to be innocent more than I want to bring the guilty guy to justice? Because I can't have both. And this is where the movie starts to really get interesting. To me, the first 30 minutes is just set up introduction to characters and situations. So the second half hour is just him starting to deal with his guilt and it kind of starts to be a little tedious to me. The saving grace of this movie for me comes after the one hour mark when we are finally introduced to the killer, Robin Williams. And may I just take a moment to say I didn't realize we were doing a Robin Williams movie so soon after his suicide. And this is a man I grew up admiring. When I saw him on screen, this is my first time seeing a performance since his death. I found myself actually needing to take a moment. I had an issue. I didn't realize I would. But it was hard for me to watch him so soon after his death. And after his death, I went and watched a lot of his early comedic roles. So coming back to this, where again, he's not improvising. He's not doing that crazy Aladdin bit here. Here, he is very contained. He's been contained before. I mean, if you ever saw Awakenings, where he's partnered with De Niro, he is really withdrawn in that. And it's a dramatic part where he really excels. I actually think he's very good in that movie. I think that he is a weird choice for this. I think that Nolan cast him because we are going to think that Robin Williams would never intentionally harm a 17-year-old girl. We'll want to believe him when he's calling Al Pacino at 3 in the morning and saying, you know, I'm an accidental killer. I'm not a murderer. I never meant to hurt her. But I think what we slowly learn is that he most certainly is. Al Pacino says early on, this is the first time he's killed 
but he'll kill again. And keep in mind, his character is a mystery writer. He writes about murder for a living. He's gotten a taste of it. And it's also the reason he knew to clean the body up. He knows what cops are looking for, which I thought was an interesting twist. It doesn't really play much more looking for a killer that knows exactly how cops work. It's a nice little hook to get you to see the film. It doesn't really play out, but I like that little bit there. Yeah, there's really no payoff other than it leaves them with no forensic evidence that he knows so much. And in fact, that he's a crime writer who has so many books, including autographed books in the Dead Girls collection. Case closed, right? I mean, I don't see much investigating needing to happen here. And yet they were having a hard time finding him. They went to Randy, the boyfriend, the high school boyfriend. It really feels like Pacino didn't know to go after him until he took Kay, the murdered girl's best friend, for a ride and she mentioned this name Brody, which they associated with the books. Yeah, I don't know that it's an obvious connection, just because she has a lot of books. I mean, I wouldn't think J.K. Rowling would have been the killer <laughs> if she was into Harry Potter. <laughs> but J.K. Rowling didn't live across the lake, and I guess there's a little bit more tenuous tie. If I had, to, being the crime writer and being so careful to cover up his own tracks almost seemed like he was exposing himself through that act. But I feel like the cops want to solve this. There's a cop in here played by Nicky Cat who seems to be rolling his eyes throughout all of this. He's like, it's in the report. And they're always cutting to him when clues are being devolved. I believe that he is in some way messed up with this. The editing fooled me on this. It sent me on a misdirect that really, it surprised me when I found out how unessential he is. He's the one that does the thumbs and blowjob joke. And I think that he is trying to cover his tracks, is trying to quickly pin blame on the boyfriend so that it will take away any spotlight of his own wrongdoing on here. It doesn't happen that way, but that's what I'm believing. I didn't take it that way. Again, going back to that blowjob line, this was to show a difference between, you know, you, you got your superstar Los Angeles cop that's coming in and, you know, you go over every little clue and you try to find out where this necklace was bought and where did this dress come from and you go over the clues over and over. And these small town cops, here's the difference. They just want to close the case. You said solve it. They don't want to solve it. They want to close it. They'll pin it on whoever the evidence will stick to. Yeah, that's exactly it is. They're not looking for a long-term investigation. They want this wrapped up. It's obviously Randy. Randy's a bad guy anyway. We know he hits her. So why wouldn't he deliver the fatal blows? We're all fine with Randy. I mean, that's sort of the selling point that Robin Williams goes after Pacino with. He's like, we know he's a bad kid. He's capable of it. Why don't we just do this? How is this very different than you switching out the bullet shells in the evidence room? I mean, he wants to sell the idea that they're partners in this and that there's not much difference between Dormer and Finch. I think there is, though. And I think ultimately we're supposed to think when we get to sort of the overblown climax that Finch is much, much worse than Pacino could ever be. I agree with that. And I think that that's a failing of this film that it doesn't sell it better, that we don't see them as the same. All I see in this movie is that Finch sees them as the same. I wish that Dormer skewed a little more evil if that's going to be what they're trying to do in this. I wish that it seemed like he might actually go along with it. He has this meeting with Finch and Finch is like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. The very next scene, Pacino's breaking back into Finch's place to hide a gun to implicate Finch. It never lets me truly believe in Pacino's badness. 
And I buy Finch's story, I think, a little bit more than Dormer's. Dormer's saying, oh, you, we can never trust Finch again. He's a murderer for life now that he's crossed this line. I don't know if I ever buy that because I see Dormer, Pacino's character, acting much worse. He's hiding more evidence. He's cutting a deal with Finch and then breaking that deal. He seems more shifty. I don't know why I should ever believe Pacino after seeing all these acts he's committed throughout this film. Yeah, but I've got a number one culprit here, and you guys may not like this, but I just think Robin Williams is miscast. I think that Nolan bet on an actor to deliver something that he just did not get on film. I think Pacino is okay. I don't think this is a great performance, but I think it's a lot better than most of the stuff he turned in in the 90s. So in that respect, it was nice to see him kind of get back to his 70s youth. But Robin Williams, I don't buy Robin Williams killer. I didn't buy him in one hour photo. I certainly don't buy him as that here. I didn't like him in one hour photo. I do buy him here. I, for some reason, go with it. I go with him as lying to himself. You know, we kind of talked about a lot of this last time. A killer who lies to himself. And Stuart, you said Leonard last week got a taste for killing and wanted to kill more. That's what we have here. But Robin Williams here as Finch doesn't think of himself as a badass murderer. He thinks of himself as a writer who made a little wee mistake. And now he's going to be so smart. He's going to outsmart all the cops, including Dormer, the super cop from L.A., by wearing a tape recorder and recording his confession. And he thinks he has the upper hand. His smugness is what William sells to me that makes it work. Yeah, I, I don't know. I see that smugness there. Yeah, there's something that's just a little off that I just don't buy. I mean, he definitely has a little bit of a creepy vibe. Whenever Williams, again, is contained and just kind of soft-spoken, I don't know, it kind of reminds me of when he was Mrs. Doubtfire, Mrs. Doubtfire. There's just something a little <laughs> off about that. You don't quite <laughs> trust the guy, but I also don't know if I buy it as a role here. Well, at least he didn't come in. Hello! <laughs> <laughs> Only you are going to compare this performance to Mrs. Doubtfire. Here. I, I don't think that creepy was what he was going for in that. Go back and watch it. It comes off as creepy. Yeah. Yeah, there is something a little creepy about that. I mean, stalking the ex. Yeah, okay. But that's for our Mrs. Doubtfire retrospective with the reboot. For here, I just, I like Robin Williams as a dramatic actor, though. I may have the most respect for him as that of all of us. Not only Awakenings, of course, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. Well, that's the one he won the Oscar for. This is coming after his Oscar glow. Yeah. And some of his later stuff, I mean... His... Really? <laughs> Name one. I was... I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It stopped after Goodwill Hunting. I'm sorry, it did. Well, okay. Goodwill Hunting and this. <laughs> there were some more in the 80s. I mean, I consider even the world, according to Garp, to be kind of a dramedy. Sure. No, definitely. Definitely. But yeah, I, I would say that after Goodwill Hunting, he started to go after things like... What Dreams May Come about suicide or Jacob the Liar about the Holocaust or, yeah, One Hour Photo. He really tried to change the way we perceived him as opposed to being the funny man in the dramatic movie. I think that's a difference. I only saw him do it before in Awakenings and his entire career, I feel like he spent trying to get away from Flubber and convince us that he could play characters like Finch. I just, sorry, I just don't buy it. And I think this movie would be worlds better if it were played by someone that was better at this kind of thing. You know, I'm going to obvious choices like Jeremy Irons or something. So do you want menace? Do you want crazy? What do you want? Absolutely menace. I absolutely want menace. I want this to be strangers on a train. I mentioned the psycho illusions in Memento last week. 
I think that there's some Hitchcock strangers on the train here. You kill mine, I kill yours. We're partners in this. I would like to see Robin Williams sell Pacino on the positives of going a little bit darker to be free. Allowing the bad guy to get away in order to save your own hide. Yeah, if this is about a man snapping, Finch snapping, and he's crossed that line, and he's going full evil now, yeah, I want an actor. I mean, I could see why you had that interpretation with Guy Pierce's performance last week in Memento, Stuart, because you got that. He goes from this insurance guy to someone that's like beating people, gangsters up. And so I would want to see that transformation if that's what I'm supposed to believe, that he has crossed this line that he cannot go back over. I want to see a performance that portrays that. Do you think Robin Williams can jump logs? Like, right away, I gotta say, we get a really cool chase scene, and much needed. Again, beautiful looking. All those logs floating down the river. I'm taking back to Frogger, though. That's all I could think about was Frogger. (laughs) Oh, it's totally Frogger. It is Frogger, and I loved Frogger, so cool. You know, I don't know if Robin Williams can do it, but that scene fucked me up. Because when Pacino falls between the logs... I started, like, having a reaction myself of fear of suffocation and just how is he going to get out of that? The fact that so many people drowned to death, what a horrible way to die choking on water. He can't push the logs apart. He finally sees a ladder. But man, that is the one scene that got my heart pumping in this entire movie. I think it is the best scene in the movie, certainly as far as adrenaline goes. And I think symbolically, I mean, when you think about what it says, they play with the light motif here, that light means truth. But in order for him to go to that light, he's going to have to expose what he wants to keep in the darkness here. And so the choice is... He could either die, an innocent man, or he could go into the light and everyone will know that he's a dirty cop. Maybe dirty for the right reasons, maybe he just accidentally killed his partner, but he will not be perceived as the hero. And that's the balance they're playing here with the light and the darkness throughout the movie, with the shade, with all of the cinematography tricks. It's also in the Norwegian film, but I feel like in that one, it was about a character impelled towards darkness. This is a character impelled towards goodness, but fighting his inner demons. The only other action scene we kind of get is they bring Robin Williams in to see if they can nail him in an interrogation, and he passes with flying colors. He's basically like, yeah, I bought the expensive dresses. She was a fan of mine, and I was a mentor, but He doesn't crack under the pressure of being accused of being a pedophile or a freak or whatever. You call this an action scene? (laughs) No, 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 no. This is not the action scene. Okay, okay. But during the course of it, we get some Pacino-ness. He starts screaming, you know, we get get some Pacino. He gets riled up to go run across town because he realizes that this mystery writer has taken the gun that he planted in his apartment and put it in Randy, the boyfriend's apartment. So the other action scene is him digging around in this darkened apartment while the cops wait for their search and seizure warrant and will go in there and find the evidence that will make Randy the obvious bad guy. No court wouldn't convict him if they find the gun used to kill the partner in Randy's room. And I will say that even though I think the Norwegian version is a little bit better, I do like some of these elements they've added. There is some more tension here. The Norwegian version is much more, I guess, atmospheric and and just watching these people like sink lower and lower. Whereas this, this is a cat and mouse type thing. You know, who can outsmart the other, Will or Walter, you know? We see Will, Dormer, Pacino, whatever you want to call him. He plants the gun into Finch's apartment. Obviously, Finch found that and planted it in Randy's 
room. I, I, I do like those elements. For a film that's been just so slow and, and almost static most of the time, these moments are fun to watch and, and to watch them try to outsmart each other. I wish there was more of this in here. I wish there was more clarity as to what Dormer's goal was, because this interrogation is going. I mean, he could out himself and out Finch, but Finch is doing what Dormer said not to. Don't give them Randy on a platter. Answer their questions. Talk about you. But Finch is there just serving up Randy, and because these are local Alaskan cops, they fall for it. And when they start to fall for it too much, Pacino then goes on the offensive. And I'm like, again, I don't understand all of his motives. I don't even know that he does. I just chalk it all up to insomnia, the film's title. He's just inconsistent. (laughs) And then, yeah, when he goes to the house, I think he's being stupid. I honestly think he could get more by being the lead detective than being this crazy rogue who's going to break into the house and then have to hide in the shower. No, but he's got to make sure Randy doesn't go up on it. I mean, he still believes... That what he's looking for, it all kind of comes out in dialogue towards the end, so it's not very exciting. But what he's looking for is the place where Robin Williams took the girl's body to clean it up. If he can find that evidence, there's no court that won't convict Finch. So they won't care what he says about them being partners and shooting his partner. All of that stuff won't matter. But until he's able to prove that Robin Williams took that girl to a place then, yeah, they're likely to convict the boyfriend. And that makes this film just spin its wheels more, that Dormer is just trying to buy time till he could find this dress, if that's what this partnership is really about. I guess it, this film is unclear, and I think it's because it's unclear what the motives of Dormer are. Is it to get Finch? Is it to convict him? Is it to hide him shooting his partner? I, I'm never quite sure, and I don't think the film... Knows. Nolan said on those commentary tracks from Fermento, oh, I know what the truth is. It's there. You can find it. I don't know if you could find it here. And I, I'm going to ding it this time. I don't think Pacino ever was in league with Williams. Williams wanted to be partners and Pacino didn't say no, much like he's not telling the authorities, yeah, I shot my partner. Yeah, Pacino is spinning his wheels is a good metaphor for it. He is just lost trying to figure out what to do. But I think that he thinks his salvation will come. He'll get everything he wants. He'll get away with killing his partner. And he'll put the man that killed that girl away if he can find the cleaning room, is what I'll refer to it. Apparently, it's a spare house that Robin Williams has somewhere else that he didn't visit already. I think the closest we come to finding out what Dormer wants comes when Maura Tierney comes in. Maura Tierney's the clerk of the hotel. This is an actress who I've really liked. I'd known her for many years. By the time this came on, I'd watched her for years on news radio, then over to ER. So when I saw her here, I was surprised she had such a nothing role where she basically comes in for Pacino to use as a sounding board and spill his guts about the Dobbs case. Well, the characters in the original placed a different effect, as most of the things in the original do here. I don't know, it's kind of a nice scene when we finally get to it. She's been floating in and out without much point for most of the movie, but she's the one that finally goes in there and turns on the light in Pacino's room, and we find out that, oh, it isn't covered with blinding sunlight coming in from that crack in the 
shade. What confused me, I never thought that it looked like it was blinding sunlight. It was just even those little pieces of light coming through were keeping him up. You know, that light representing, I don't know, his guilty conscience and not being able to sleep. I never thought that he saw that room as being fully lit. So that that scene didn't quite work for me. I like the way this happens. And yeah, it's a little trite. I mean, it's the metaphor is coming into play here that the truth will be out. It's the moment where he gets truthful, right? The lights are on him. He can't hide in the dark anymore, and he's going to tell what he did that was so awful with Dobbs. And she doesn't really care. <laughs> That's the irony of it. And she's like, there's two kinds of people in Alaska. Those who were born here and those who came to escape something. I wasn't born here. Yeah, and we're never told what she came to escape. Were we? Because she's not really even a character. Come on, that's poetic, guys. She's not in any position to judge. What she's saying is, I've done bad stuff too, and I can relate to you. She's framed people for murder? She's faked evidence? Maybe. Maybe. I think if you're trying to make a point that everyone's just running from something, then make it something, you know, a a little less significant than planning blood at a crime scene, but that she still felt that was a reason to run. I don't know. Just leaving it silent, I don't know if that quite works. I don't see it as poetic. I didn't care because I expected the characters to do more coming in after the Norwegian version. And when she didn't, I'm like, okay, I don't care what she did. I'm trying to figure out what her moral that she's selling is. She says, I guess it's about what you thought was right at the time and what you're willing to live with. So that is what I guess the thrust of this movie is. It doesn't matter what is right. What did you think was right at the time? Did he think shooting his partner was right at the time? And this Dobbs case where Dobbs was a child killer, he thinks. Pacino's not sure. I mean, there's no proof against him. If there was proof. Except he saw his eyes. He saw his eyes. That's it. If there was proof, he wouldn't need to fake the evidence of the child's blood in Dobbs' apartment. So Dobbs will assume he was guilty because Pacino's a good cop, but Dobbs could have been innocent. And either way, he manufactured the evidence. He planted blood in Dobbs' apartment and sent him up. He thought it was the right thing to do at the time, but much like we're watching Finch frame Randy, who is a girl abuser, but not a murderer, we don't know exactly if what Dobbs did was right, we're supposed to say it doesn't matter. You thought it was right at the time. Who cares what IA says? And this film is going to go back on that because at the end, Dormer is going to stop Ellie from doing what she thinks is right at the time. So I I feel like the film's not even consistent. No, no, I, well, I guess I have a different take on it. What I take it to mean is from this point on, he's not going to lie anymore. He's not going to cover it anymore. He's going to do what's right, whether it exposes him or not. He never thought that what he did to his partner was right. But he thought that he needed to do that to protect himself and was in a moral bind when he realized catching the killer would mean exposing himself. Now he's not worried about that. He charges into the third act to rescue Ellie from the cleaning room, as it were, without thought to himself. Because she's figured it out. She has gone back to her case files and realized that he carries a 9mm gun, something that no one else carries, and there are 9mm shells at the crime scene. I think that's still pretty thin. I don't think that that is a (laughs) conviction. But anyway, she's been asking him questions. She's been gathering for a while that he has a guilty conscience. And I think that that's all that she needed when she hugs him goodbye and knows that he has a nine millimeter in his back pocket. Yeah, she feels for that gun. Yeah. I thought she was grabbing his ass for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, she wouldn't be the first one. (laughs) Hoo-ah! And she is off to go see... 
Finch, though, Finch has made this story up that he, he has letters from Kay that will help convict Randy. So she's going to, I guess, that clean house. Did he make up that he has the letters? I thought he really had the letters. He did, but they were at his other apartment because Dormer sees them and that's how he gets the address and knows where to go. So is Finch just a crazy mofo at this point? He's going to kill Burr no matter what? And that's why he says he has the letters? What if it was Duggar who showed up? Yeah, but come on, this is straight out of Silence of the Lambs. I was expecting a deathhead moth to land on her at this point. I mean, she's at Mrs. Lipton's house, and she knows that he's the killer. Did she know when she went there? She clearly knows that the case is not as tidy as it was, that there has been some kind of cover-up. But has she figured out that Randy is innocent? I don't think she has. No, I don't think she knows that Finch is the killer until she sees that dress in the drawer. Right. Okay. And that's where she puts it all together. Yes, she sees a dress and immediately goes for her gun. That is some conviction. She's a student of the Super LA Cop, so why not? She's got case files on him. And I gotta say, if I wasn't buying Robin Williams before... Mork taking out Million Dollar Baby with a punch. Come on. This ending is bad. This climax is just flat out a bad climax. It's better than the Norwegian one where the character who correlates to Finch just accidentally falls and dies. Yes. <laughs> a different intent. Not that I'm reviewing that one, but a different intent. I think in that film, he pretended that he killed the girl because he wanted to know what murder was like. And it ended up being that he was just embarrassed to be spurned by her. Here, I think it's almost the opposite. Is that he was trying to sell us on the idea that he only tried to comfort the girl and she laughed at him and... And he got a little rough. And the truth is that he's a burgeoning serial killer. Still, this whole shootout at the end. I mean, they say Pacino hasn't gone without sleep in seven days. For a film called Insomnia, that's actually downplayed a little bit. We do get these flashes. I don't know if anyone here other than me has actually suffered from insomnia. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I get those flashes and those eye rolls where like you're just everything starts to swirl as you kind of start to fall asleep, but you can't. I went back and I freeze framed some of them. And sometimes it's the Dobbs framing that you see. Sometimes it's Eckhart's death. And sometimes it's Robin Williams attacking Kay. Well, and here's my question about Robin Williams attacking Kay. Because at one point, Robin Williams says, at midnight, it will be six days. You beat my record. Is that why? Was that like, did he have insomnia and did that play into the murder? No, he said he had that right when he moved to Alaska for the first time. Oh, okay. So that was a long time ago. Yeah. Pacino beats his record by going six days without sleep. He only went five before he went to sleep. But the shootout is very unsatisfying. I mean, the fact that we're supposed to see, I think, that they're not the same. Finch and Dormer, I think that's what the movie's telling me, even though I'd prefer it to be more ambiguous. But they're going to die with each other's weapons. They swap guns and shoot each other. Yeah, what does he say? You forgot the wild card. And by the way, the wild card is Ellie upstairs. Why didn't he kill her? Yeah, I had to actually turn on subtitles to figure out what he said. And once I figured it out, I don't know why he said it. Because the gun wasn't the wild card. The wild card was the tape player, or the wild card was the gun hidden in the oil. I mean, there were various wild cards, but a gun that Dormer just dropped was not a wild card. <laughs> that was just a mistake because he was tired and Pacino. But as much as I didn't like this shootout, I can recognize that in an American crime film, we, we've come to just expect it. And it would not be satisfying if, yeah, Pacino was not embroiled in some kind of fight with the killer. 
It's just unfortunate that it's Robin Williams. This doesn't seem like a fair fight. I don't know. It's two old men, neither of whom I think could win in a fight. I'll I'll go with it. (laughs) But I don't like necessarily that he dies. I would take him being shot. You know, that's the kind of penance for an accidental death or something. That Dormer, who we're supposed to believe is a good guy, dies here. I don't feel like it's a just ending, nor do I feel this film has been set up as a tragedy where I should mourn his ending. It's just... Oh, all right. No, it's a good thing he dies. Free of consequence here. Ellie knows what he did, but no one else is going to know. But everyone's going to know. I mean, she's willing to throw away the shell, and he tells her no, has her put it back in the bag. I actually like this exchange on the dock. I think it ends the only way it really could. I mean, we couldn't have the trainee following in the slippery slope of moralism that took down Dormer. I mean, we need to believe that she's kept her morality or it would be a tragic ending. Him dying is not tragic. It fits. It's what I guess should happen. I just think he gets off easy. That's all. There's no benefit to taking the consequences when you're about to die no matter what. And all he's doing is allowing his legacy to be sullied, but that does not to me seem like he's finally going up and saying, I'm going to be honest about this. That's not how it goes. That he stops her from throwing it away. What difference does it make? He's dead. (laughs) It just seems so moot. He does save her conscience in the process, but it just seems so pointless. It's the best I can say for it. And again, go back, listen to our Departed. I hated that ending shot where you see the rat after the rat is killed. Here with Pacino, let me sleep as he's dying. I want a little bit of subtlety. Give me a little bit. I guess it's no worse than the Norwegian version where you get a free frame on Skarsgård's eyes that are like, painted on the closing frame open. <laughs> that was awesome in a 1980s thriller kind of way. It was kind of awesome, but I'm glad they didn't do it here. And I'm sorry. I like that he's going to sleep, as it were, or dying or whatever. You know, he, he could be resuscitated. It's not totally conclusive. But yeah, probably the only end to his insomnia is to, yes, be ruined and to die. I kind of liked the let me sleep. I mean, the fact that he could finally get to rest. It almost makes his death welcome like it's like insomnia had been his terminal illness and he finally was no longer in pain for it i got that from when he was dying though and telling ellie to have integrity and and be the cop that he wasn't i i don't know it was just a little too far for me i get that he's finally getting to sleep now that he i guess has a clear conscience and is dying it's just funny because when i came out of the movie theater originally to talk about this the woman i was with all she could bring up was the fact that hillary swank is not wearing a jacket and it's alaska and although i was mad that she didn't want to talk about any of the morality when i watched it again all i could think is yeah hillary swank came so underdressed for this (laughs) so jacob stewart other than the wardrobe do you recommend insomnia jacob you know, I think we've all kind of dinged this film a bit. I, I don't know if it's as poor as maybe I've made it sound. It's a okay crime thriller. There's a bit of mystery. I just wish the themes were done better. I guess not everything could be memento, but with Christopher Nolan, I think you come to expect that. And this feels like, hey, here's a project. I don't know how invested he was. I'm sure, you know, again, with a lot of the shots, the scenery, I want to visit Alaska because of it, but... It's a mild recommend. There's some interesting ideas. I just don't know how much they germinate here and and how much growth they have. And, you know, I've said I like the Norwegian one better. Not a whole lot more. It's the one I'd watch over this, but that one's okay, too. I don't know. Maybe it's a problem with the source material, but it's a mild recommend. Stuart. 
I'm shocked. I did not think you were going to go recommend on this, but I'm going to go with you on the mild side. I, I definitely liked it more than you did, but it's hard not to be disappointed, right? This is the aftermath of Memento. That movie was so great. It was so challenging. It made me work so hard. And here, there's no denying it's pokey. I have problems with the source material, even though I can recognize that original movie. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was originally. I just think that Nolan tries to be a little too clever here. That He thinks that it's so brilliant to take a whodunit and turn it into a drama about guilt. And truly, that's subtext. You still need to have things exciting happening. And truly, so much of the middle of this movie has little pulse to it. I mean, Soderbergh himself said he was worried when producing this movie that making a movie about insomnia would make people bored. That that's not a cinematic quality that can really come to life. And try as Nolan might, it really doesn't. I mean, it gives you a mood, it gives you a feel, it kind of captures Pacino's state of mind, but yeah, I just don't think that this is in any way a remarkable film. Inessential is the word that kept coming to my mind. But, you know, I kind of also thought that about Soderbergh's Solaris remake, which also came out around the same time. That was a foreign film I didn't like very much that I thought the Americans improved on, but most people think is boring. I think that's going to be the case here. Most people are probably going to think Insomnia is boring, but if you want to get film student-y, if you want to compare an original with a remake, I think that it was smartly remade. I think the Americans did a good job of adapting, and I think if you're a Nolan fan, definitely pay attention to it. You're going to see enough about the man you admire in here to feel it's worth your time. So, recommend On the Mild Side. I remember very clearly seeing this in theaters and walking out really pissed off, honestly, because I had kind of pledged myself to Nolan after Memento. And when nobody would go see this with me, I was like, ah, you're all fools. This is Nolan. And I walked out of that theater and I just, I wouldn't have given it a strong not recommend, but I definitely would have given this a not recommend. I never revisited this movie. I had no desire to revisit this movie. Watching it now with the benefit of knowing I didn't like it last time, I see this film has some good things going. I like a couple of the performances. Specifically, I'll say I like Pacino. I made fun of him for being Pacino. He's Pacino. I mean, what do you want? And he is a little more subdued at times, but he never falls into the character of Will Dormer for me. And I definitely like William Swank. I feel Tierney needed to be given more to do, but she does the best she can with the tiny role she has. So there's some good things there. And I did get into this time a bit more of the mystery and the mental questioning of did Dormer mean to kill his partner? I like some of the visual style. I think the only bit of Nolan we have here are those flashes. I had a lot of fun freeze framing it. So it actually is a movie I think is better on Blu-ray than it even was in theaters because you can go back and analyze it that way. But I do agree with you completely, Stuart. I think that I found more interest in this movie comparing its differences with the original than I did in this movie itself. And I agree with Jacob that I like the original Norwegian film slightly better than I like this one. Mm -mm. But I don't really like either of them that much. (laughs) I'd give this the weakest of recommends, whereas I'd give that one just a weak recommend. Oh, well, you guys are surprising me. I really thought I'd be the sole green arrow here. But I'm going to say this, though. I'm surprising myself. I thought for sure Insomnia would be my first Red Arrow of this stretch of Nolan we're doing. Because I Red Arrowed his next film, Batman Begins. 
So, as part of this Nolan retrospective, when we return next time to discuss the prestige, I will have revisited Batman Begins and say if in context of Nolan versus coming out of Schumacher... Very different place to come from, yes. Not as much purple in, in cod pieces. <laughs> yeah, less nipples. Yeah, how can he live up to Mr. Freeze? <laughs> so this will be my third time watching Batman Begins and hoping I give it a green arrow. But I'll let you know when we reconvene to discuss the prestige. That's right, yeah. Nolan wanted to actually make a Howard Hughes biopic, but Scorsese and Leo got there first, so... You can hear all about that failed attempt in our Aviator retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He ended up making a very Howard Hughes-like Bruce Wayne in Batman Begins. I'd love to go revisit that one. However, we're only covering the Nolan films we haven't already. If you want to hear my thoughts on that, I doubt they've changed one iota from what I said back when we covered it in our Batman retrospective. So it's there if you need to know. But we're doing the movie he made after Batman Begins next week, The Prestige. Yes, to make it clear, our Batman Begins review, all of the Batman films are reviewed in the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. It hasn't been that long. I'm sure that most of my feelings remain the same, but is my overall impression going to be more favorable? I hope so. I think it's a great film, but, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't. What I'm curious to know is, will you like The Prestige more? I know you struggled with it before. Struggled? I didn't struggle. I hate it. There's a difference. (laughs) Struggle? I struggled with Memento. (laughs) The Prestige I got. I just wanted to fucking punch someone in the face for it. Well, I am looking forward to this because I will be a newbie for The Prestige. I have not seen it. I know Arnie's feelings about it. I I might have to watch it a couple times if I feel the same way Arnie has expressed. But yes, I'll be a newbie. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, me too. I've seen it twice and I have no doubt that I'll recommend it. But how strongly and and what you'll have to say about it, I am looking forward to it. Meanwhile, if you want to hear us review another film... Leprechaun Origins comes out this Friday. This is Halloween. There's only three more days till Halloween. Halloween, Halloween. Three more days till Halloween. I can't even get enthusiastic about this one. I can't lie. It sounds like your music box is breaking. (laughs) Yeah. Silver Shamak has broken. And yeah, Leprechaun's out of my life this Friday. (laughs) So please donate to support our show and you can get all seven Leprechaun reviews. And I'm going to spoil something. There are green arrows given from all three hosts to various Leprechaun films. All of us went yes at least once. That is true. Yeah, I was surprised myself as someone that went into the series thinking it was another Children of the Corn field of red arrows. There's one I like. Not going to be on Friday, but then anyone <laughs> who's seen the movie already knows that. So we'll be back Friday with Leprechaun, and then next Tuesday with The Prestige. So now, guys, thank you for joining me, but I'm going to get some fucking sleep. Adam Charlie, close as you are now, I could smell the son of a bitch. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. You don't come back from that. 
Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. Aren't you going to write that down? And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Shutter Island, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street, Avatar, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Batman series, and hundreds more. I followed all of your cases. You certainly did your homework, Detective. And at the NowPlayingPodcast.com homepage, you can find a link to our forums where you can discuss these films, as well as links to NowPlaying's Twitter and Facebook pages, where you can chat with the hosts and read written movie reviews. You want me to take you somewhere? Sure, as long as it's fun. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website. Or you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and more at the Now Playing Cafe Press store. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I guess it's about what you thought was right at the time, then what you're willing to live with. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't presume to know what happened. You weren't here. But then again, you never are, are you? The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. You're a cop, not a lawyer. Don't let IA cut your balls off. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. It's over, Walt. It's over. What has two thumbs and loves blowjobs? This host, this is Jacob. <laughs> I let you have that one. I wrote it down and I'm like, nah, I'll let Jacob do it. <laughs> I had another one ready to go just in case. <laughs> that line had no point in this movie. I mean, why is that line in this movie? Who doesn't like blowjobs? Women? Okay. I mean, seriously, introduce me to one person. And as the evidence fabricated by Finch mounts against Randy Burr, what am I saying? As the evidence fabricated... Randy Burr? <laughs> this is a character that doesn't even exist. There's a comma. Randy, comma, Burr. I knew that would be a problem when yeah. I was writing it. It's Randy and Burr. Or Ellie. <laughs> yeah, you're going with last names, and I, to me, she's an Ellie. Burr doesn't say Hillary Swank to me. Burrs don't cry? <laughs> the question is, will he ever come back from the darkness? Hello? I can hear you. You can't yeah. hear me. My computer crashed, so I don't know what's working. Well, we can still hear you. Does that mean it's not recording? I don't know. What do you mean? How, how can we still be talking if it crashed? All right. My monitor has gone to shit. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't see any applications. I can't see anything. <laughs> I can't see my notes. It's the fog. <laughs> yes. Looks like my f- computer's going back to the Apple store this weekend. And you only have, what, an- another six podcasts to record? <laughs> <laughs> the author was pretending... That he killed the girl all along because he wanted Holy to know what. Holy shit! Was that thunder? That was thunder and lightning that cracked so close, my headphones almost like blew up in my ears. I thought you dropped something. Oh, I didn't even hear anything. You didn't? No. It's still going. I thought he dropped his mic or something. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
Holy shit. I mean, you have to understand the reason I exclaimed is I use wireless headphones and the lightning hits so close that like they burst static into me. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's it, it was a startling thing. No, you're allowed to be electrified and, and be alarmed by it. I think that's completely acceptable. No worries. So Jacob Stewart, other than the wardrobe, do you recommend insomnia? Jacob. Okay, first of all, I don't know if there's like a bank robbery going down, but like there's cop megaphones and everything. So if you hear that, let me know. What is going on with all of our sound issues tonight? This is crazy. <laughs> and like these copters have been circling for like 10 minutes and I've heard cops talking and... Hold on one second. Let me listen. Here. I can't hear it. If my hearing has not been great. I didn't hear the thunder. So like right now is they're at their loudest. I hear that very clearly. Yeah, that's... It sounds wow. like you love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah, no, seriously, <laughs> like, there may be a hostage situation next door. That's how close it sounds. Welcome back to L.A. I know. <laughs> or it could just be a shoot. It could be, yeah. Probably not. Choppers, no. at least here at the beach, usually mean there is a perpetrator of something around. 